And turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We're going to read what is, I think, a familiar story concerning the Ethiopian eunuch. There is in the country of Ethiopia the longest continual Christian federation or denomination of churches. It's the most ancient of all churches in the world. That undoubtedly dates back to the events of Acts chapter 8. But before we read these words from verse 26 and onward, let's ask the Lord for a blessing upon the reading of that word. Shall we pray? Merciful God and Heavenly Father, we come before you as impoverished, blind, and deaf beggars, desiring a a pittance from your hand that we might feast upon the bread of your table. For we know, Lord, that we are not equal to this gift, this treasure that you open before us, but we hunger for it. And like the Syrophoenician woman, Lord, we say, let the crumbs of your table feed us, the dogs, as well. Lord, bless us to that end as we worship you this day, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. Hear the word of God. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, the, through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Then let's turn in our forms and prayers books. Lord's Day 26. Lord's Day 26. We have considered the means of grace the preaching of the word and the sacraments broadly considered. We're going to now focus our attention on the sacraments, particularly two Lord's Days, two sermons on baptism, and then three on the Lord's Supper. So Lord's Day 26, this is the first on the 
teaching of God's word concerning baptism, let's answer these questions together. Question answer 69, how does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally? In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it promised that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity that is all my sins. And what does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God by grace has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. And where does Christ promise that we are washed with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ our Lord, as we begin now this mini-series, two sermons on the doctrine of baptism, in Lord's Day 26 and 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism, we do in the awareness uh, that thinking about baptism, thinking about God's covenantal dealings with his people, is a, uh, a conversation that carries on in the churches of Jesus Christ throughout the world, and that getting this right, getting uh, uh, our understanding of baptism and of God's covenant dealings is no easy thing. We do well in our study now of baptism to remember already what we've seen in Lord's Day 25. Sometimes, especially when it comes to baptism, but sometimes even with Lord's Supper, we forget what Lord's Day 25 teaches, which is to say that the sacraments are not producers of faith. That is the, the power of the preached word alone. The sacraments are confirmation of faith within the lives of believers, meaning that baptism as a sacrament is a sacrament which encourages, comforts, sustains, equips, blesses believers. Believers are the ones who can receive from this word of the Lord, tangibly displayed in the water of baptism, the comfort of God's promises. But of course, in this congregation, more often than not, it is babies we baptize. 
How do we make sense of that? How do we understand that relationship? How do we maintain this important focus without losing the comfort that is for our children as well? This is the challenge that baptism places before us, requiring a a careful reminder and maintenance of a balance between what we would call the external administration of the water of baptism with the internal fulfillment of that promise by the work of the Holy Spirit. A reminder that it is not the water of baptism that saves us in which we find our hope, but the God who speaks to us in baptism. Yet it is a word that we can utterly rest upon and trust. There's this constant back and forth. It is not this, but it is that. It is not insignificant, but it is gloriously wonderful. It is not something we should take for granted, but we should rest in it. To get baptism right is a challenge. And so we again undertake that challenge in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Catechism begins with a wonderful question that really sets the tone for us in our understanding of baptism. It asks, how does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally? The question presses the vital matter of salvation upon us. It says it's not enough to know that there is salvation. It is not enough to know that there was a Savior named Jesus, born, died, rose again, and is ascended. It is not enough to know that salvation is a possibility in all the world. Here's the question the Catechism wants our hearts to wrestle with. Do you know that this Savior's blood shed upon the cross is yours? Belongs to you personally? Not as a matter of uncertainty. That's not the approach the catechism's taking. The catechism's not coming and saying, I'm not sure it's for you. Are you sure? That's too often. Also in our churches, how the baptismal promises are presented. I'm not sure. Prove to me that I can be sure. No, no, it's the other way around. It's Lord's Day 1 that speaks behind Lord's Day 26. The only comfort that we have is that we belong both body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That great comfort, do you know, says the catechism, that it's yours? The answer to that question comes in part at the baptismal font. As the catechism rightly teaches us, the water of baptism is a sign of the washing away of sin. Water, of course, can symbolize a lot of things. It can represent many things. Nourishment. It can represent life. It can represent death. The Catechism says it represents the blood of Jesus Christ. And that washing is so very personal. It, it, it's so very deep. So very complete. It, it is a washing that speaks to our soul's needs. Our soul's impurity, to use the language of the catechism. All our sins, to use the language of that first question and answer. All of my sins are washed. All of my soul's impurities. You know that your soul has impurities, right? It has greed and hatred, lust. It desires what it may not. It does not desire what it must. Even our souls are broken under the weight of sin. And do we who struggle with that, to, to we who come into this place burdened with addictions, burdened with 
anger, burdened with all of these sins that we grieve over. They, they cause us no end of grief, even though we daily commit them. The water of baptism says they're washed clean. They're washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the word of baptism to you and to me. That's the word of baptism to everyone who is marked by this water. The answer to the opening question, how do you know that it's for you, finds a solid and secure foundation in the word of God given to us in the water of baptism. That is, of course, the key. It is a word from God. It is a promise to you from your God. That is what the water of baptism speaks into our lives. And for that, we can find great comfort knowing our weaknesses, knowing our frailty, knowing our failings. We can come every time we see a baptism again. We can hear God speak to our hearts. This is for you. The baby, of course, is the one being baptized, undoubtedly. But the Lord says, I'm also speaking a word to you. You who've been baptized when you were young, when you were an adult, whenever you were baptized. When your sins rise up against you, when your guilt overwhelms you, when your shame is deep, when the trials of life weaken you, you can struggle along in the midst of all of the burdens of this life, knowing that your God loves you with a perfect love and has cleansed you with a perfect grace so that your soul's impurity and all your sins are covered. We need to know that, don't we? This also the scripture teaches. Does not the psalmist in Psalm 73 wrestle with this very question? Or what of, for example, the words of Psalm 22 verse 1? We're so used to associating them with Easter, but they were first spoken by David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David felt forsaken. David felt forgotten by the Lord. David felt as though the Lord had failed to keep his promises to him. Sometimes we can feel the same thing. We can feel in this fallen world such pain and grief. Listen to Habakkuk's complaint in Habakkuk 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. That is the cry of believers. Maybe not us today. Maybe it will be tomorrow. But it is the cry of believers in this world undoubtedly. Indeed, the devil works diligently to press upon us these tensions, these problems of evil, these questions of existential value. Why is it this way? Why am I suffering? The devil works diligently to rob us of our peace and of our comfort, whispering lies into our hearts, lies that have always a measure of truth in them. For we do falter, we do sin. We do rebel, we do wrong, and we struggle with God's commands. Indeed, the longer we live, the more we witness and see the devastation of our own foolishness. 
And then how do we answer these questions? How do we deal with these struggles? How do we bear up under these burdens? If our confidence is in ourselves, if it is in our righteousness, if it is in our abilities and strength, we will quickly falter and fail. But our confidence of our place within the company of the redeemed Our confidence in the faithfulness of God towards us is found not in our word, not in ourselves, but in his promises. We can come also in prayer boldly before the very God who has spoken us those words, and we can say to him in the midst of our trials, Lord, you have promised, now I ask, I demand, you must keep your promise. You have said you will govern me so that all evil is averted or worked for my good. God, my Father, now keep your promise. You have promised to wash me clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now keep your promise. You have promised your spirit that I might live for you. Now keep your promise. As surely as the water washes away the dirt from the body, so certain may we be who cling to the promise of God that he will fulfill his word, that the blood of Christ does cleanse us, that his spirit does work in us, and that we have security in his kingdom. When your sin and your guilt, when your weakness and frailty overwhelms you, rush again to the very font of his grace and rest in his word to you. But don't forget, this is a word to believers. For church history is filled with examples of how this wonderful goodness of God can be washed, or can be rather twisted, and turned from its intended purpose, the encouraging of believers, to instead become a cover or a license to the wayward, to the rebel leaving the unbelieving and unconverted with false confidence. Those church members that actively and carelessly, unrepentantly live a sinful lifestyle, but believe, well, I've been baptized and therefore it's enough. We may struggle to remember this because so often our baptisms involve babies. We do as a congregation need to get better at baptizing adults. That is of seeing those who do not know the Lord, who are living in darkness and have never come into the church to be baptized, coming to repentance and faith and being baptized as adults within our midst. We are grateful to the grace of God that allows us to baptize babies. But we need to see the baptism of adults too. We need to work at that. But sometimes because it's so many babies we see, it may leave us with the sense that somehow believing the promises of God isn't really vital. I mean, babies, after all, don't believe, do they? Or at least not easily evidence any kind of faith in their hearts. And that being the case, maybe then, if the blessing of the promises are ours before we come to the faith, then maybe we don't need faith. And there is, of course, as with all of the devil's lies, a truth. Indeed, the history of redemption is the history of God's faithfulness to an unworthy people. Read Psalm 33 and hear again about God's faithfulness to an unworthy people. 
Or think about what Paul says in Romans 9 when he speaks about the blessedness of being an Israelite. He asks the question, what is the benefit of being an Israelite? He says, much in every way. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Oh, there were blessings for the unbelieving Israelites too. Yes. But notice, those blessings did not exempt Israel from the curse of the covenant, but guaranteed them. Don't miss that. Israel was destroyed as the people of God in 70 AD and has never been reconstituted, not even in 1948. The Lord was done with them. The curses of the covenant fell with unrelenting swiftness. Israel was not exempted from God's command to believe their failure to believe ensured their destruction indeed the covenant that God made with Israel obligated them to believe that is also what we must see precisely because God said you are mine and I am yours therefore Israel was to rejoice and respond in faith and embrace his grace even as we are too with baptism. Baptism obligates us to believe. Baptism is a personal word of God to us, not to free us from his claim, but to give us every reason to lay hold of it. For in that word, the Lord says, I know you're a sinner. I know you fail. I know you will fail your whole life on this earth. But I have washed you and will wash you. I have claimed you and will call you. You are mine and I am yours. Rest in that great comfort. Know that great peace. Believe that rich promise of which there is no greater inheritance in this earth. There is nothing a parent can give to a child, a grandparent to their grandchild, a church to its members, a nation to its citizen, than this great gift of God's promise to us as sinners. A promise that is very personal, but also very powerful. Promises, especially in our human context, marriage promises, business promises, promises we make to our friends, they aren't always kept, are they? They're they're not always so powerful. They're personal, but they're not always powerful. Well, that's not the way with our Lord. For his promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The water of baptism, of course, points us to Christ. It says the reason this water has meaning is because the blood of Jesus was shed upon the cross. But it says more than that, the water of baptism also speaks of the blessing of the Holy Spirit who is earned for us by the Savior in his death and resurrection whom he pours out upon us after his, resur- after his ascension rather into heaven, that we might be filled with the Spirit, that the Spirit might enable us to believe, to live, and to glorify God in all that we do. 
Thus, Jesus Christ's saving work promised us, pictured for us in baptism, is not just an idea. It's not just a thought. A blessing that sits on a table somewhere like a trophy you put upon a shelf. Look at that. That happened once. I got that once. Isn't that neat? And then move on. It is a renewing, a sanctifying, a daily power of Jesus Christ in the lives of those who believe. The water of baptism promises us profound but also powerful blessings that daily give us the strength to live through the mess that is our lives. And this promise of God, which is key to the sacrament, that it's a promise, it's a word from God to us in tangible form, that word is secure in the person and work of Jesus. Now, too often, baptism is a ritual. Merely a ritual. That's why in our question to mom and dad before we baptize their children, we ask, are you here just because it's a mere ritual? You may not be. You must not come out of superstition or mere ritual. This is not something that we just do because this child has been born into our community and we mark our community in this way. This must be for all who come Parents and children alike, adults, and all who are baptized, they must come to the water of baptism confident, confessing that we need the grace that is displayed there every day. Do we not need every day to be reminded that we're forgiven? Sometimes our appreciation for that grace isn't what it should be. We think more highly of ourselves than we are. We need to remember that in thought, word, and deed, we are called to give all glory to God every moment of every day. And we ought to acknowledge that we don't do that. And because we fail, we ought to come before God in prayer and in petition, Lord, cleanse me of your gra- in your grace. Not because we are uncertain, not because we think that if we do it, God will therefore on the basis of our asking, forgive us, but precisely because he's given us this word, we can come and say, Lord, Lord, you have promised to wash me clean in the blood of Christ. I claim that promise by faith. We can sometimes let this pride of self, this failure to recognize our need, bleed into our relationship. Sometimes we, we acknowledge, we say, I don't, I don't think more highly of myself. I'm humble. I know that pride is wrong. I know that arrogance and self-righteousness is wrong. I won't have anything to do with that. But the truth bleeds out in our relationships with the Lord and with each other. We can get angry with God when things are tough. We can doubt him and question his plan for our lives in the midst of trials. And what we're saying is, I don't really deserve this, God. I, I go to church. I do my devotions. Why, why are you making me suffer? We're not, or we're getting what we don't think we deserve. That's an implicit self-righteousness. When we get angry with God because things aren't going the way we think they should. And we can be self-righteous in our relationship with others. Seeing their, very, their failures very quickly. Oh, we can identify each other's failures without fail. Shaking our heads and 
gossiping about this one or that one. As though we'd never do any such thing. As though we're above such problems. The water of baptism reminds us that we struggle with sin. That we struggle with the echoes of sin in our lives and that we serve a God whose grace is as wide as the ocean. And that he welcomes us to acknowledge our need before him. And don't we need help in the way of righteousness? Don't we need help? Don't you need help daily to love each other, to honor your teachers at school, to work hard and diligently at your job, to tell the truth, to be patient, to be kind? Do you not, like me, don't you need help in that? Sometimes we don't think so in a multi-generational church surrounded by godly parents and grandparents and friends and family. We imagine that being a Christian Living this culturally Christian character is something that just happens naturally or by our personal choice. But of course, that's not true, is it? None of us is equal to the task of walking the straight and narrow pathway of righteousness. Each of us must acknowledge selfishness, impatience, and laziness, even as we must wrestle with the purity of our language the purity of our hearts, the besetting sins, the old ways that crop up too often. And we need to hear again the promise of God in the water of baptism that His Spirit equips us to live the righteous way, that we have been transformed, we have been given grace to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness. Not because we're in ourselves able. One of the devil's Favorite ways to discourage us is to whisper into our ears, especially in times of struggle and strife, especially in times of grief. You can't do it. You can't do it. And then we get that lovely bit of encouragement from people, well, the Lord doesn't give you more than you can handle, which really isn't true. He always gives you more than you can handle. That's why the Lord, through his servant Paul, reminds us that in your weakness, right, Paul was Unequal to the task. Remove this thorn from me, Lord. No, says God, I won't. Why not? Because when you are so weak, you can't carry it. That's when my strength becomes your strength. In your weakness, I am strong. But Paul says, I'll boast in my weakness then. Paul didn't say, I can handle it. He said, I can't handle it. I can't do this. But God in his grace is equipping me. The water of baptism says... You are weak, but he is strong. Do you not need that strength each day? Do you not need that strength as you bear up under this bruising, this difficult world, this world of immorality, this world of empty, empty blessings? Do you not need the grace of God to equip you to love one another? Is loving each other something so easy that you don't need help for it? Sacrificially, in a servant way, in a Christ-like way. Remember, Christ sets the standard. Do you not need help to walk after the example of Christ? Surely you do. That water of baptism then promises you that God will give you the grace to carry on. He will equip you to live for the Lord. And not because I say so, not because the catechism says so, no, because the Lord himself has said so. Our study of this first Lord's Day ends with a reference to the Scripture that establishes this truth for us. 
The passages that are listed begin with Matthew 28. It's interesting. We think of that as the Great Commission, which is a relatively new description to that passage, historically speaking. I think from the 1970s. It was historically understood in this way. That is a passage that establishes baptism and the ministry of the church. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a ministry, a sacrament, not created by the church in order to govern the markers of membership for the church. It is an institution given to us by God, Jesus Christ himself, commanding his congregation, commanding the apostles, the the foundation stones of the church, that this is what they were to do. They were to baptize. But we're also given in our... uh, Catechism from Mark 16, verse 16. Similar words, to be sure, but words that rightly and wisely connect for us the words of faith as well as the promises of God. In Mark 16, verse 16, we read these words from our Lord. In Mark 16, verse 16, we have... Jesus saying, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. You see the connection, of course, there between the sacrament and faith. Faith is necessary. You you can't say, well, I've got the blessing. I don't need to believe. No, you must believe or else you will be condemned. And the Apostle Paul, encouragingly, reminds us in his letter to Titus about how though we have all been and all are broken and struggling in our lives, yet the Spirit of grace promised us in baptism equips us to live for Him. These are some extremely humbling but still encouraging words. Titus 3 verses 3 through 5. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's not a very uh, delightful description of us, a very discouraging, very humbling word. Yet the apostle goes on, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And indeed, the Apostle Paul himself speaks of this in Acts chapter 22, at verse 16. He speaks about his experience. He gives his testimony about the Lord's blessing to him. And he says, and he speaks there of um, how Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me, And standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness to him, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Indeed, isn't that why the Ethiopian eunuch himself, being convicted by the word of God, by the promise of God concerning salvation, says to Philip, what's to stop me from being baptized? 
He saw the need of baptism. He understood what baptism was, a command of God given to the church so that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ might have a foundation upon which to stand of God's grace and goodness, a promise of the covenant that they could absolutely rely upon unreservedly. And so he says, give me that promise. Give me that grace. Give me that blessing. We might be tempted to say, well, why would you need it? Look, you already believe. You believe. What do you need it for? Oh, no, no. It is grace that precedes faith. It is the faithfulness of God that is displayed. It is the word and promise of God that is administered. Ethiopian eunuch understood. Let me be bathed in the love of God. That all the days of my life I may rest in his promise to me. Administered for me by the church in the office of Philip, the deacon. Now, one of the reasons why baptism is too often reduced to a mere ritual is precisely because we forget this. We think that somehow or another, as the world tells us, as society pushes upon us, that baptism is really just a mark of the church created by the church fathers in order to maintain, in order to manage membership. It's really a way for us to keep everybody under our thumb. That's how it is according to our neo-Marxist society. It is a marker of oppression and of hierarchy. And sadly, that's been too often true. The church has misused the sacrament of baptism. If you read in the history of the church and how the church used sacrament, the sacrament of baptism at times to manipulate and to control people, And you can say, yes, the church has failed. But as they say in in Latin, the misuse of something does not remove its use. Oh yes, the church has at times failed to preach the gospel through the water of baptism faithfully. But the response to that is not to say, well then do away, let's throw literally the baby out with the bathwater. But it is instead to say, but what did God say to us? And by pushing us back into our word, into the scriptures, the catechism rightly reminds us, this is a word of God. This is a sacrament established by Christ. This is a promise that is given not by the church, but by the Lord of the church. And when we cling to the meaning of baptism, then what we're doing is we're taking God at his word. We are exercising faith in his promises. Here too, the scriptures are filled with the Examples of bold and even sometimes brash, at least in our ears, claims of of the goodness of God by those people that have received the mark of the covenant. You read the Psalms, and there are times in the Psalms where David is demanding of God. He is commanding God to act. Even Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, wait a second, David, you're a sinner. What do you deserve from God? A little more humility, David. That would be nice. And David says, humility, no thank you. The Lord has made me promises and I am going to cling to those promises. And so I demand of the Lord an answer. Ah, that's too bold, you say. There's an entire book based on that premise. The book of Job. What does Job do but refuse to let go of God even as his friends say, Job, just admit you're, you're a sinner. Come on, man. You're clearly failing. You're being punished because of a mistake you made. Admit it. Job says, I'll tell you all day that I'm a sinner. I will tell you that all day. I know it. But God doesn't deal with me as a sinner, for he has promised me redemption. 
And therefore God must deal with me faithfully. I demand faithfulness from my God. And sometimes we need that same boldness. We need that same confidence. That same strong and unrelenting faith. Not saying so much to the Lord, I deserve this. I deserve this, God. But instead, you've promised. You've promised. Here's a word, I think, for parents who today are grieving over their wayward child. You come before the Lord and what can you say, Lord? My child is wayward. They are rebelling against you. What can I say? I have no reason for you to bless them, to save them, to work regeneration in their heart. Lord, what can I say to you? You can say what God has given you to say. God, you baptize them. Keep your word. Make your promise of salvation real. For you have given us your word. Here's a word not just for parents, but for the weak and the weary. As we struggle in our marriages, in our financial circumstances, in our relationships, in our own health and well-being. We can be overwhelmed. Say then, Lord, I'm unequal. What you have brought in your providence into my life is beyond my ability to carry. So give me the grace that you've promised. I lay hold of that water by faith. And indeed, here's a word for all of us. All of us, young and old alike. Our young members, our children, should be taught and trained at their earliest days that their greatest blessing, their most remarkable privilege, their most powerful identity is that they have been baptized. And they need to be taught to say, Lord, not for my sake, but for the sake of those promises which are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, deal with me according to your faithfulness saying that not fearfully, but faithfully. Saying that with great confidence in the, lo- in the God who loves us so powerfully in Jesus Christ. Indeed, don't you see then? The water of baptism is an absolute fountain of blessing that is intended to encourage and to equip and to strengthen and to renew God's people as they struggle, as they strive, as they walk each day before him. There's so much that we can debate about baptism. There's so much we can talk about in terms of the covenant and the different theories and attitudes. We can discuss with our Baptist brothers and sisters about adult versus infant baptism. We can have these conversations. But never lose the heart of this blessing. For think of it, God in his mercy, knowing your frailty, says, though I've told you in my word, and that should be enough, I know how weak you are. I'm going to show you. And think as a congregation how blessed we are. How often that water is not displayed. And you can be encouraged then that this God is your God. That this God whom you trust has loved you with a perfect love in Jesus Christ even as our young members can be reminded. Because you've received this mark, you are so blessed. Trust, trust, trust. Don't let the world draw you away. Don't let the world tempt you. Don't let the world say it's better out here. It's not. That's the best thing you've got going for you. The God who loves you that much. 
So trust Him. Rest in His promises. Embrace His grace. Live by faith. For the mark of baptism is the mark of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. So we pray. Merciful God and Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that there's a lot about baptism that can get difficult to understand. That there are big books written on this topic. There's lots of debate. But we want, Lord, the, the reason that you gave this sacrament to remain foremost in our hearts and minds. Help us to leave this place encouraged that we've been baptized. Help us to leave this place challenged because we've been baptized and help us to leave this place living before the world as those who are baptized for we pray it in jesus name amen